Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host... David Boris. On the morning of November 8th, 1861, the RMS Trent, a British mail steamer, set sail from the port of Cardenas in Cuba. On board the ship were two men, James Mason and John Slidell, Confederate envoys on their way to Europe to court European support in their ongoing civil war with the Union, i.e. the northern United States. At midday, a Union vessel, USS San Jacinto, crested over the horizon line and rapidly came within firing range of the Trent. A warning shot rang over the Trent's bow, and then a second warning shot was fired. And finally, the Trent slowed to a stop. An American boarding party then boarded the vessel and removed the Confederate envoys and their secretaries from the ship. When news reached Washington, the capture of these envoys was hailed as a victory. When news reached Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy, news of the capture was also hailed as a victory, but for much different reasons. The Confederacy believed that this event could be the spark to bring the British onto the side of the Confederacy, and they were not totally wrong. When news of the Trent Affair, as it became known, arrived in England, political and public opinion clamored heavily for war with Washington. It seemed like the Confederacy was going to get its wish, and Abraham Lincoln's Union was now going to have to fight against both the Confederacy and Great Britain. Caught in the middle of all of this, were the colonies of British North America, and specifically the United Province of Canada and the colonies of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Were war to break out, the first strike by Washington would be an attack against the British colonies along their northern border. And while many back in London felt that Great Britain would ultimately prevail in a war with Washington, very few were confident that British North America could hold out against an American attack. This is Season 8, Episode 9, The Trent Affair and the Defense of British North America. 
This week's book recommendation is Howard Jones's Blue and Gray Diplomacy, A History of Union and Confederate Foreign Relations, published by Chapel Hill in 2010. The American Civil War erupted in April 1861 over the issue of the state right of slavery. Fought between the Union, that is the anti-slavery northern states whose capital lay in Washington, D.C., and the Confederacy, a collection of 11 pro-slavery southern states who had seceded from the Union and whose capital lay in Richmond, Virginia. While Initially, confidence was high that the Union would deal quickly with the Confederate military forces. A series of Confederate victories shocked the North and set a course for a war that would go on for much longer than ever expected. From the very beginning of the conflict, Richmond made continuous appeals to various European nations for support in their war. Their leverage was the highly valuable and highly sought-after King Cotton, an all-important export shipped from the southern states to many European nations, including Great Britain, who had, at the time, the world's largest textile industry. Many in the South felt that Great Britain, in particular, could eventually declare support for the Confederate cause were enough diplomatic pressure applied. The desire for British support is a key part of the diplomatic context for the Trent Affair. By the end of the summer of 1861, President Jefferson Davis, the political head of the Confederacy, dispatched two commissioners to head up an official diplomatic delegation to both London and Paris. These two key figures were James Mason from Virginia, a former United States senator and John Slittle of Louisiana, like Mason, a former senator, and someone who had served in Mexico City as a key diplomat for the James Polk administration during the Mexican-American War. Clearly, for Abraham Lincoln's union, there was great concern that this diplomatic mission might lead to European support or recognition for the Confederate cause. The fact that the delegation would arrive in Europe with bales of King Cotton as an export reminder further worried officials in Washington. In October 1861, Mason, Slidell, their secretaries, and Slidell's family successfully slipped past the Union blockade and arrived in Cardenas, Cuba. From there, they arranged passage on the British mail steamer RMS Trent. The Trent was going to take them to St. Thomas, and from there, they would eventually arrive in England. While this delegation and their entourage awaited departure on the Trent, the USS San Jacinto arrived in the area captained by Charles Wilkes. Wilkes and the San Jacinto were on their way to assist in the Union assault on Port Royal in South Carolina. But when Wilkes learned of the presence of this Confederate delegation, he changed his plans and sought to capture Mason and Slidell. At this point, it is worth mentioning that because the RMS Trent was a neutral ship, i.e. a ship of a neutral nation, there was no legal precedent for Wilkes to carry out this action. 
Regardless, on the 8th of November, Wilkes caught the trend as it was leaving Cuba and sent aboard a boarding party of Marines led by his lieutenant, Donald Fairfax. Now, this is where things get a bit tricky. Fairfax was ordered to seize the envoys, their secretaries, their diplomatic pouches, and also take the ship as a prize. But through a series of countermeasures by both the Confederate envoys and the British officers on the vessel, Fairfax left the ship with only the envoys and their secretaries. The diplomatic pouches were never seized, and the ship, the Trent, was released. While one might think this would have been less of a diplomatic incident because of the ship being released, Fairfax's decision to release the vessel would actually contribute to an escalation of the crisis to come. By mid-November, the captives were imprisoned at Fort Warren in Boston, and news of the capture spread rapidly. Most people in the North celebrated this as a victory, a much-needed morale boost after months of seemingly unending defeats. Wilkes himself was celebrated as the hero of the hour, even receiving a praise from Congress and Lincoln's own cabinet. It appeared as if very few Northerners understood the potential ramifications of Wilkes's actions in stopping and boarding the Trent. The jubilant mood of the North was to change after November 25th, when news of the Trent affair reached Britain. When word of the incident spread, the British people, the British press, and British politicians were outraged. In a cabinet meeting on November 28th, the Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, was reported to have thrown down his hat and yelled, and this has never been proven beyond anecdotally, I don't know whether you are going to stand for this, but I'll be damned if I do. Many in the cabinet, in fact, felt that war was now inevitable. In fact, the cabinet even sent word to Paris, informing the government of Napoleon III, the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, of the details of the situation in order to placate that government in case of war between the British and the Americans. The British minister in Washington, Lord Richard Lyons, certainly had his work cut out for him when he received word from Palmerston on November 29th that in order to find a peaceful resolution, the Americans would have to release the prisoners and issue a formal public apology. Certainly, British honor had been impugned. After all, this was the great power of the day, whose power rested on the strength of its navy, on its domination of the seas. Wilkes, in ordering the boarding of the Trent, had violated British neutrality, had violated the dominance of the British Navy. Of course, this wasn't helped at all by the fact that many in the United States celebrated his actions, as some newspapers put it, and I quote, for twisting the lion's tail. Now, interestingly, on November 30th, a draft of the formal instructions sent to Lyons was reviewed by Queen Victoria and her husband, Prince Albert. The prince, who was in extreme ill health at the time, actually proposed some edits to the instructions, including language that might suggest 
Wilkes had acted on his own or maybe even had misapprehended his orders. You see, Prince Albert felt that the language of the original diplomatic instructions was too harsh and might not give Lincoln's administration an appropriate diplomatic golden bridge in order to find a peaceful resolution. By including this new edit, which was accepted by Palmerston, Lincoln's administration could now also place the blame on Wilkes acting alone and further distance the administration from his actions. These new diplomatic instructions set sail for New York on the 1st of December. In the meantime, however, Lyons was navigating a diplomatic environment that seemed, in his mind, not to appreciate the severity of the situation. Now, a lot has been made, in particular, of the actions and words of U.S. Secretary of State William Seward. Certainly, in Seward's younger days, he was seen as hawkish and even anti-British, often using fairly belligerent rhetoric towards London. But historians debate Seward's true stance on the Trent affair. While in public, Seward may have positioned himself as bellicose, in private cabinet meetings, Seward was far more calm and realistic, and in fact, advised Lincoln to give in to British diplomatic demands. What really seemed to have heightened tension between the two powers was, frankly, the media. In both Britain and the United States, newspapers clamored for action, and very few headlines at all called for caution or a peaceful settlement. The public, via the media, were being whipped into a frenzy, which in turn cast a hawkish glow on both London and Washington. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Folks, I know that sometimes advertisements can get in the way of a good story. And here at CCH, we never want a good story's momentum broken up, but we rely on advertisement to provide us the financial support needed to make this podcast. That being said, there is a way to access Curious Canadian History episodes advertisement-free. If you go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search Curious Canadian History, you can access all our episodes ad-free by just donating $1 or 2 bucks to the podcast. It's easy, safe, and a great way to get this content without ads. Patreon even has an app, so you can simply use the app on your phone like you would be using any of your podcast apps. And now you have every new CCH episode right there at your fingertips. Check out patreon.com slash Curious Canadian History today and join the club. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. While all of the diplomatic wrangling was going on, Britain began to make military preparations because everyone knew that if war broke out, 
the American army was heading straight towards British North America. Now, the state of British North America's military was, to put it lightly, absolutely in shambles in 1861. There were roughly 4,300 British regulars in British North America, including the colony of British Columbia, 2,200 of them in the province of Canada, and I am referring to this United Province of Canada, which included Canada West and Canada East, so modern-day Ontario and Quebec, respectively. There were also about 2,200 in Nova Scotia. On paper, British North America had about 100,000 militia. In reality, they could only rely on a small fraction of that. The militia was undertrained, under-equipped, it was estimated that there was only about 25,000 small arms available in all of British North America. The militia was underprepared, and frankly, most of that paper militia was just that, only on paper. The majority of those on the militia rolls had never even trained a day in their lives. There were, however, a series of fortifications stretching from Nova Scotia into New Brunswick and then into the Canadas, but these were severely run down. Some had simply been abandoned for years. Others had been turned into asylums for the insane. The fort on the strategically important Ilo Noir along the Richelieu River, today the site of Fort Lennox Historic Park, had been turned into a reformatory. Simply put, when it came to defending British North America by land, serious reinforcements and construction efforts were needed for any semblance of a chance at defending against an American invasion. British planners believed that at the very minimum, they would need 100,000 militia, not just on paper but in person, 10,000 British regulars, and a series of well-defended and well-prepared defensive fortifications across the frontier. It was clear to many back in London that the defensive situation was not great, and on December 9th, a decision was made by Palmerston's War Committee, a committee struck to prepare for possible conflict with the Americans, to send 11,000 regulars to British North America, including engineers and artillery, along with a massive supply of rifles, cannon, ammunition, uniforms, and various war materiel. The first of these transports set sail from Liverpool on December 12th. Interestingly, the American consul in Liverpool was invited to watch this departure. It's worth noting the speed at which Palmerston's War Committee made this decision. Word of the Trent Affair arrived in London in late November, and within two weeks, a massive reinforcement of British North America was underway. One of the oddest stories of this supply effort is worth mentioning here, and highlights the difficult logistics of reinforcing British North America. The Melbourne, a ship carrying most of the general staff of this expeditionary force, was forced to stop in Cape Breton to reload on coal. Yet by this point, mid-December, it was felt that the St. Lawrence River would be too treacherous for its engines. The military staff on board thus transferred to a steamer that took them to none other than Boston, where, disguised as civilians, they were then able to get to Montreal via tickets on the Grand Trunk Railway. 
Now, the question is, had the Americans attacked, what would have been the plans for the fledgling defense force in British North America? Well, the hope was that the small Anglo-Canadian force could delay the Americans as long as possible while reinforcements arrived. Ideally, this delay meant holding on to three key urban centers, Quebec, Montreal, and if possible, Kingston. New Brunswick was almost certainly lost in case of an invasion, while Nova Scotia would benefit from the arrival of the first reinforcements via Halifax, which could help stymie any American incursion into that colony. There was one rather desperate yet interesting plan put forward, and that was a rapid invasion of the state of Maine, specifically with an eye to capturing Portland. The hope here was that an offensive operation into Maine might force some of the American army to withdraw back to defending their own border, with an eye to eventually having to recapture the lost state. One has to say, though, that for many back in London, and many in the Canadas, there was dim hope that an American invasion could truly be stopped. Yet, for many, there still was some hope, and that hope rested on the Royal Navy, the great protector of British interests around the world. Now, while the Union Navy enjoyed a numerical advantage in ships along the Atlantic coast, the British ships that could be mobilized were superior in both size and the number of guns. The British could call on ships from the Caribbean, the Mediterranean, and in the defense of British Columbia, they could call on the British Pacific Fleet for support. The plan was that the British Navy would begin by punishing the key Atlantic cities of the Union with artillery bombardments, while also implementing their own coastal blockade. The Navy would then ensure that British North America could continue to receive reinforcements and supplies as it slowly recaptured any lost territory. The situation on the Great Lakes, however, heavily favored the Americans. The great bodies of water were simply undefended by the British or the Canadians, while the Americans actually had naval vessels on the lakes. However, the British were buoyed by the fact that they could get ships into the Great Lakes via the St. Lawrence, something the Americans could not. There was never any hope that the British could carry out any serious, permanent invasion of American territory in case of conflict. But a stingy defense of British North America, coupled with the temporary capture of parts of Maine, in alignment with the devastating British naval control of the Atlantic coast, as well as continued attacks by the Confederacy would, many in London believed, force the Americans to the peace table. Thus, during the first week and a half to two weeks of December, British ships around the world began to sail towards North America in preparation for a potential conflict. Luckily, that conflict never came. Despite all the open bellicosity, not just from the media or the public of each nation, but even in Britain's clear mobilization, London and Washington both hoped to avoid war. 
the British ambassador in Washington, Lord Lyons, was given a fairly wide berth to determine if Washington was able to meet London's diplomatic demands. Now, back in London, two things occurred to dampen British war enthusiasm. For the public, this was the death of Prince Albert, who passed away on the 14th of December, and a major period of mourning thus began, which dominated the news cycle, kicking the Trent Affair off of the front pages. In private, three days after the prince's death, Palmerston received word from Seward, confirming that Wilkes had indeed acted on his own. Remember the golden bridge that Prince Albert had put into the edited missive to Washington. Word also came from Seward that London should anticipate an amenable conclusion to the current diplomatic crisis. On December 19th, Lyons and Seward met and, rather informally, Lyons presented the Crown's demands for satisfaction, stating that he would expect a response within seven days, though Seward asked for a delay and thus the official presentation of Britain's demands were not submitted until December 23rd, giving Washington seven days from then to respond. By this point, war fervor had heavily abated within the capital. Seward and others were convinced that war with Great Britain would doom the United States to forever be split, and it would dash any hopes of ending the Confederate succession. Lincoln's cabinet met on Christmas Day to formulate their official response, and Seward was tasked with writing the actual reply, though tasked by Lincoln with writing the reply in a way that ended the tension without making it seem like Washington had just given in to all of the British demands. And Seward did just that. The two envoys would be released, Seward wrote, But in his reply to London, he stated that this was because the two envoys were of little to no importance. In fact, Seward stressed that were they of importance to the Union, they would not have been released. Seward then went on to present the Union as having taken the moral high ground, stating that the Americans would grant the British the same protection from impressment that the Americans had demanded from the British for years prior. Now, this was an odd reference. You see, one of the key reasons that the War of 1812 began was this issue of impressment. British ships would actually impress American sailors, basically forcing them to serve on British naval vessels. And this was a key contention between Washington and London back in 1812. Thus, in 1861... Seward was, in a way, presenting the Americans as morally above the British, as a people who did not believe in impressment. Now, for the record, impressment was stopped after the War of 1812. Finally, Seward stated that no formal apology would be forthcoming. Now, while not all of the British demands were met, this was enough to end the crisis. The envoys were released on the 1st of January, 1862. To the chagrin of many in the South, it seemed that an Anglo-American war had now been avoided. 
In fact, when the envoys reached their European destinations, they received a fairly cold welcome, having now been publicly portrayed as unimportant and having been so closely associated with the diplomatic crisis now known as the Trent Affair. Ambassadors in both London and Paris were fairly hands-off. Thus, what began looking like a Confederate diplomatic coup, whereby Britain may very well be dragged into war against the Union, actually turned into a failed Confederate diplomatic mission to Europe. For Britain, British North America was once again safe from a potential American invasion, and never again would the two powers come as close to war. Though, politically speaking, British North America was about to change quite dramatically, as numerous delegations across the British North American colonies were starting to meet to discuss a new future, one where British North America might be better defended and perhaps better organized to meet future crises in the form of a union of British North American colonies in the form of a Canadian confederation. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends.